We see that he has explained doctrine as the foundation for faith. Doc doctrine is what shapes how we think. And how we think shapes how we live and how we talk. And so it's really important to have this foundation of doctrine so that it'll shape our thinking, which will focus our actions in the right place. And so that's the approach that Paul takes. And he does this in um, a number of his epistles when he's writing to a, um, a church congregation, like he's writing to um, the, the believers in Rome. So today, <clears throat> in these last five chapters, it's kind of nice that we ran out of time last week so we can do all of the practical stuff together, chapters 12 through 16. So we will dip back into last week's lesson um, for that last chapter. If you didn't bring last week's notes, sorry about that. We'll, we'll just work through things. Um, but we're going to deal with these five practical chapters of based on all of this doctrine, how do we live? And through this, through our questions, I've put together 10 principles for practical Christian living. Now, the reality is there are way more principles of practical Christian living in these five chapters, but I've just picked 10 based on the questions to kind of give us something to sink our teeth into as we go through. So those will be on the screen as we go through things. But let's just dive right into chapter 12, which tells believers that we are to think and live like Jesus. Back in Romans chapter eight, Paul said, the goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ that every believer should look like Jesus, should talk like Jesus, should act like Jesus, should think like Jesus. What does that look like and how do we get there? So verses one and two are practical or, or are super practical. We could spend today, next week, the week after in these two verses alone. But here's what they say, chapter 12, one and two. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, therefore, is pointing back to the 11 chapters that we just read. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Famous verses from chapter, um, from chapter 12, um, a famous book. And so what do we learn from what do we learn from these verses? So we're just taking a high level view. We'll look at the three commands that are in these two verses. And the three commands are designated through, through the verbs that Paul uses, action words, um, things that should be happening. So what are these three practical commands that Paul gives in the two verses? So there's one in verse one. So what is it in verse one? Brenda. Yes, present your body as a living sacrifice. So this harkens back. If you were a Jewish believer in Rome and you're listening to this, you're thinking, whoa, hold on. When we brought sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem, they were killed. They were dead sacrifices at that point. We're to bring ourselves as a living sacrifice. We are to be the sacrifice, not just bring a sacrifice. Number two in verse two. Yes, Lynn. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed. So this word conform has the idea of being, pre being pressured, of being pushed into the shape of something. This isn't a jello mold where you like pour the liquid in and then it's formed. This is like Play-Doh. So you have a canister of Play-Doh and you put it in one of those a press 
and it has the little thing, you know, it comes out as a star or a clover or something, and you press it, it's that pressure and it's forcing the Play-Doh out, and the Play-Doh is in the shape of whatever the form was. That's what we're talking about. So he is saying, this is a negative command, don't be pressured by the world to look like them. Don't succumb to the, the temptation to act like the people you work with or live like the people who are your neighbors. Don't talk like them. Don't think like them. Don't fall to that pressure. What's the second command in verse 2? Is a positive one. I've been looking this way. Sincha. Excellent. Let God transform you by changing the way you think. Now, this is an important one because it it says be transformed, which I'm glad you put that let God transform you because God is the one that does the transforming. This isn't a question of self-discipline. This isn't a question of like, I just got to try harder. I mean, we do have to participate in this for sure, but this is God through his spirit doing the work. And what is the fuel that he uses? It's God's word. God's word is what changes us. It says we are renewed, that is to make new again, transform. If you, look at the, if you look at the Greek word, you would say, wow, that looks like the word metamorphosis. That is the, the process by which a little caterpillar, this ugly little thing that eats your tomato plants, is transformed into a beautiful butterfly, right? God wants us to be changed from the ugly little sinners that we are into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. That's his plan for us. That's what he wants for us. And we need to participate in that and let the spirit do that through us. And how do we do it? It's by spending time in God's word. One of our, one of our goals as elders this year was to help all of us spend more time in God's word through this, through this Sunday school approach. As we read a chapter a day, develop that habit, dig into it, answer some questions, think, have your minds renewed based on the text of the scripture that's in front of us. We're over halfway through now. Isn't that amazing? We're finishing up like, we're almost finished with the big books and the the ones that take a long time to go through. And in the next couple of months, we're gonna have a couple of larger books, but things are gonna be happening like more rapid fire. We're gonna have a lot of little books. Some of those little epistles we'll just have one week on, for example. Let me encourage you, stick with it. Keep reading, keep answering the questions, renew your mind, have this goal. Let the Holy Spirit use his holy word to make you like his holy son. This is what we need to become that beautiful image that's like Jesus. So the basis for these commands is given right at the beginning of of, uh, of verse one, and it's the mercies of God. Whoop, I answered my own question, sorry. What's the basis for these commands? It's the mercies of God. Okay, so how would we pray this this week? So there's a few questions that suggested that we use the text of scripture in fashioning a prayer. So some of them I'm going to ask for responses on, others are a little more personal and I won't. But this is a good one. How can we use these verses to shape how we pray? Lisa, yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah, good. Good. Thank you. Shane. That's great. It kind of ties back into like Romans 6 and 7. Yeah, nice. What else? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, articulating that willingness to be transformed and the dependence on him to do it. Those are all excellent. And we could take each of these three commands and form a prayer around them. Lots of different parts of these verses that our prayers could incorporate. And I'd encourage you to do that as you read the scripture going forward. These discussion questions that we have will put a point on a particular verse, perhaps. Take that and turn that into a prayer. So this, these first two verses gives us our first two pr- principles for practical Christian living. So the first is be the sacrifice. Voluntarily offer yourself to God as worship to him. It says this is a completely logical thing to do. This is a reasonable thing to do based on the mercy that we have received from him and the gratefulness that we should have. And the second principle is, and I've, I've left out the don't be conformed, but the second principle, pursue transformation. Allow the Spirit to completely change you by renewing your mind daily in God's Word. I think one of the biggest problems with not walking with God is not reading God's Word. If we are not in God's Word, we are not going to be daily renewed. And if we're not being daily renewed, we're not going to be transformed. So where does it start? It starts with the simple discipline of spending time in God's Word, opening it up, asking Him, show me today yourself. Show me who you are. Show me how you want me to live my responsibility before you. All right, next question. In verses 3 through 8, Paul discusses how we are to function as the body of Christ. He uses a metaphor here. So what is the mindset that the transformed believer should have based on verse 3? Lynn. Yeah, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. How would we summarize that in one word? Humility. That's what we're talking about. I think it's interesting that he doesn't say, don't ever think about yourself. He says, don't think about yourself more highly than you ought to think. In other words, it's saying, think about yourself realistically. He says, I think he says, think soberly, right? Yeah, think with sober judgment. Take a critical look at yourself and not be overly critical, but don't be overly generous to yourself either. Think with humility. We see a similar concept in Philippians chapter 2, and we are urged to have the same mind which was in Christ, which was a mind of humility. In verse 4, he gives the reason for this, he says, for as in one body we have many members, and and the members do not all have the same function. So the reason for the command is that every member of the body is important. So we can't think of ourselves, <coughs> could you give me a bottle of water, please? We can't think of ourselves more highly than everyone else because everyone else is important too. Everyone is 
has a different function. Everyone has a different gift, as we're going to see in a few minutes. Every member of the body is important. Thanks, hon. Okay, all right, verse six. What are we to do with the gifts that God has given to us? Copy. Use them. Yes, so the answer is actually more simple than the question leads us to believe, right? So if God has given you a gift of service, then you should be serving. If he has given you a gift of mercy, then you should be exhibiting and using the gift of mercy. We are to use the gifts propelled by our old friend Faith. We need to trust God to work through us as as we use these gifts. So what are some of these grace gifts that God gives to believers? Verses seven through eight. There's a laundry list here. Straight from the text. Cup. Teaching is one, yep. Okay. Serving is one. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy, lots of different gifts. There are other passages in scripture which have similar but different gifts. Part of what I take from that is that this is not an exclusive list. This isn't all of the gifts that God gives. These are some. And the point here is that God gives people different gifts. He doesn't give everyone the same gift. Now that's not to say that it's like, oh, I don't have the gift of mercy. So I can just be blunt and rude and like, I don't have to take anyone's feelings. And, no, 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 that's not what it's saying at all. This is a special working of the Holy Spirit through a person in a, in a particular way. So I, I, I gave you one of those per, personal reflections here. And this deals with the second half of the chapter because I, didn't, I was running out of the ability to ask more questions. <laughs> So I, I just asked you to think about all these commands in verses 9 through 21. There's lots of them. And think about which ones you need to work on. And then use verses 1 and 2 to help pray for the Spirit to transform you in these ways. So, for example, verse 9 at the beginning has a very simple sentence. Let love be genuine. So it's almost like there's an assumption that love is going on. But in what way is it going on? What is the motive in which it's, it's going on? And it is genuineness. So here's how that might sound if you, were, if you identified this as a problem and you wanted to use Romans 12, 1 and 2 to pray it. It might sound like this. God, you are so gracious, merciful, and loving to me, but my love for you and others is not always genuine. Sometimes it's superficial, polite, but selfish. Transform my love today so that it's not fake, like the world's love. You see how it can be, how we can tie those two things together and use them? So we'll move on to our third principle for a practical Christian living, and that is get busy serving. Use the gift. Use the gifts that, that God has given you in whatever way it is. Humbly serve God by serving others with the gifts that God gives you. God has put us together in a body. We are to serve together. We are not solos. We're not up here just singing a solo all the time in our Christian living. We come together as the body of Christ to worship him together. We don't see Lone Ranger Christians in scripture. 
And then the remainder of chapter 12 deals with the, what our personal relationship should look like. There's lots of other commands and, and we see the words one another pop up several time, times. And so it's showing us what our personal relationships inside the church should look like. And there are also some things that are outside the church. Talks about our enemies and how we are to, um, how we are to interact with them. All of this starts with that genuine love from verse 9 for both believers and unbelievers. So the fourth principle of Christian living is let genuine love govern our relationships with one another and with believers, unbelievers, sorry. Let's move on to chapter 13 now. Chapter 13 talks about how believers are to relate to both civil law and mosaic law. So in a way, what Paul is doing is he is starting like really small in his circle of where your belief in Jesus Christ should be manifest is expanding. So it starts in Romans 12, 1 and 2, very personal. Here's what you need to do. You need to be transformed. And then it, and it's like, then it goes into the church. You need to be humble in the body. You need to respect and value everyone else in the church. And then it's unbelievers that you come in contact with at work and your neighborhood and your families and your schools. And now he's going out to governmental authority. And he's going to kind of circle back at the end of this chapter and deal with something that probably the Jewish believers are, have on their mind, which is the relationship that the Mosaic law. So first question in chapter 13, what should our attitude be like toward governmental authority? Yeah, Dave. Respect. Yeah, respect. So, I'm sorry? That's right, God put them there, right? So the, the, act, the, the words from verse one says, let every person be subject to the governing authority. If, if we're not respecting that authority, we're not gonna be subject to it. So there's an obedience here, a submission that God is saying we need to do. And if we take a step back and we look at scripture as a whole, we see a lot of scripture is framed in terms of authority. God is the ultimate authority. He is sovereign over all. And Paul has explained that in prior chapters. He is the ultimate authority. And then where does the rest of authority come from in the world? It comes from him. He delegates his authority in different areas. He delegates authority in the world around us to government so that we don't have anarchy. He delegates authority to the church he delegates authority to the family. And in each of these areas, we need to guard our hearts because our hearts are what? Our hearts are wicked. And what does a wicked heart want to do when confronted with authority? Rebel. We are all rebels at heart. We exhibit it in different ways. Some of it's a little passive aggressive, some of it's just outright aggressive, but we push back against authority. Lisa and I have talked about this a number of times. Nobody likes to be told what to do. We just don't. Yeah, but it doesn't contradict what God says. There are, well, it, if it doesn't contradict. So in the spectrum of authority, who's at the top? God is at the top. And so if an authority underneath God tells us who are under their authority to not meet for worship, you can never come to worship together again. That is a direct contradiction of what God has told us to do. So in the hierarchy of authority, 
when delegated authority oversteps its bounds and tries to go above God, we have to say, that's it. That's where we draw the line. We saw a good example of this during the pandemic, right? And the elders had a lot of conversation about this. It's like the state of Massachusetts has told us that we cannot meet together. And we said, given the situation for a limited period of time under these conditions, we will submit to this authority. And then they issued regulations that said you can meet, but with these restrictions, we said, fine, this is still the authority they're allowing us to meet, which is the important thing. And so we will submit to the authority that is above us. But if they had drawn the line and said, can't meet, and the pandemic goes away, can't meet, different story. And so we have to obey God rather than man, as, as Peter said in the book of Acts. That's a great point. All right, Shane. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want difficult government? Yeah, look at them. All right, back to our text, verses four and six. How does Paul characterize governmental rulers? We've sort of answered this already, but what does the word, what does the text say? What's the wording? Yeah, God's servants or ministers. So the government authority is God's servants or ministers. This, this is that delegation, right? So you have the master and you have the servant. The master is God, the servant is political authority. So while this may be troublesome for us, this is what God said. He says, live in accordance with the authority that I have put over you. So if we resist government authorities, then we are actually resisting God himself, verse two tells us, all right. So the practical Christian living principle here is we need to submit to authority. We need to recognize the authority that's in our life and submit to it, regardless of whether the authority deserves it. There's no qualification about who the authority is. All right, in second question for in chapter 13. How does Paul characterize love in verse 8? Yeah. Okay, that's verse 10. You're getting ahead of me, but that's, that's, that's going to be an answer to the next question. What is, what is verse 8? This, this question is a little bit more cloaked. It's owed, so it's an obligation, it's a debt. So the, verse eight says, owe no one anything. This isn't teaching about whether or not you can have credit card debt or a mortgage, that's a different subject. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So the debt that we owe to each other is love. I owe love to every one of you. I am in your debt. That should characterize how we deal with each other. And the conclusion about love is what Lisa said in verse 10. It is a fulfillment of the law. This is what Jesus taught. What is the summary of the, of the commandments? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So how would this sound in a prayer about loving your neighbor? 
So I'll read what I've written rather than put you on the spot, and I want to keep things moving a little bit here. Father, I present my loves to you today. Transform my love from loving myself to loving you and loving others more. May your spirit keep me from being pressured into loving self like the world does. Help me to love others like Jesus does. So this sixth principle is love your neighbor, love others like you love yourself. Let's move on to chapter 14. We spent two days in chapter 14. A couple of summers ago, we spent a lot of time dealing with the topic of conscience and Christian liberty. And this is one of the primary texts on that topic, how believers are to handle differences of conscience. There's two specific areas of Jewish law that Paul focuses on. So this kind of brings us back to who is Paul writing to? Well, he's writing to the Roman church, which is made up of both Jewish people and Gentile people. And the Jewish people are predictably having trouble letting go of all of these traditions that they have and all of these restrictions. There's two, er two general areas that he identifies here in verses 1 through 6 that were apparently a source of problems. Lynn. Yes, so eating restrictions and observance of the, of the Sabbath, Sabbath, or you might call it... Um, diet and days. <laughs> so what my diet is and what the days are that I observe, probably the days refers to Sabbath. It could refer to holy days as well, the day of atonement, things like that. Um, but it's, it appears that the brothers who had diet problems were even going beyond what the Jewish, the Mosaic law required, because it sounds like they were vegetarian. The Mosaic law did not require that. It just re restricted from some meats, not all meats. So let's move on. Those, so with that topic in mind, that was what was going on. What are the responsibilities of the strong believer and the weak believer? The strong believer is the person who takes the New Testament commands and strictures and understanding that the ceremonial law of the Old Testament has been set aside. The weaker believer is the one who is having trouble with some of those ceremonial things that have really gone away. We're not talking about setting aside the moral law, thou shalt not kill, that sort of thing. So. The question says, everyone wants to think that they are a strong believer, but that's not always the case. What commands does Paul give to the strong in faith? Faith, verses one through three. It's the first one he addresses. So there's actually three commands here built into these three verses. Welcome the weak, don't despise them. There's one in the middle of that too, at the end of verse one. Maybe the opposite of welcoming them. Argue, quarrel, don't quarrel with them. So we welcome, we don't quarrel, we don't despise. So the strong is, is urged to wrap their arms around the weak. Now, interestingly, I think the weak often think they're the strong because they're saying, I am so spiritual that I will not only take God's standard, but I will go further than that. It's really what the Pharisees were doing. So if the line is here, I'm gonna draw the line over here so I never get close to this line. And what is the command that's given for the weak? Don't judge. Why? Because I've, dr I've drawn my own line way over here 
And oh, this strong person is like rock, walking right down the middle. And it's like, I'm, how can they be spiritual if they're doing that? That's the attitude of the weak. They're not conforming to my standard, not God's standard. So the weak is urged to not judge. And then the reason for that is given because the strong is God's servant, just like the weak is. And then the reason for this is given in verses 10 and 12, which is we're all going to give account of ourselves. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So every one of us has to answer for ourselves. I don't have to answer for my wife as to what, her, what she does with her conscience. So then there was a personal question here that we won't, we won't spend time on, but I hope you reflected on, to think about what areas are you strong and which ones might you be weak in. And then the next question would have been, how do you apply this in the church? How does the commands of the script, of scripture affect your thinking in this area? All right, so since the observance of special days and diets that Paul deals with are not New Testament commands, what is the standard with which each of us should consider in determining what to do with an extra biblical concept? So that's a mouthful. But essentially what I'm trying to say is, okay, the Old Testament ceremonial law said, don't eat pork. Don't wear a garment that has, you know, combined cotton and wool. Some very particular things. So the, the observant Jew in the Old Testament could say, okay, don't eat meat, check. Don't wear that, check. That's not what we're given in the New Testament. Instead, we're given a principle that's much more general. And what is that principle from verses six through eight? Dave. Yes. Right. So when you're thinking about what you eat or the days that you observe, you have your own conscience before God. Good. Shane. Yeah, so what does that get to? That gets to our fundamental attitude in, with which, what we're doing. And what's, what is that attitude? based on that verse, to glorify, to, to glorify God, right. So when we have the focus of glorifying God, if we have our eyes on him, that's going to help us shape our conscience, shape our thinking before God, which will help us to stand before him. In verse six, it say, says, the one who observes a day, observes it for who? For the Lord. He honors the Lord. This is that attitude of glorifying God when we honor him. That's what we're trying to do. So who is this about when we have an issue of opinion? It's about me <laughs> and what I think is best. So the next question in chapter 14, based on verses 15 and 20, what's at stake if a strong believer is careless with the exercise of their liberty? And what should we pursue instead? Will. Yeah, that's right. So you, would, you are risking damaging another person's walk with the Lord. The, the words that are used here are pretty strong, right? Verse 20, do not, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. 
destroy. Yikes. That should get us to sit up and pay attention. Instead, what are we to pursue in verse 19, or just pursue? Peace. Peace, yeah. So we are to pursue peace, not conflict. So the follow-up question really for the strong is, are you going to be a builder or a destroyer? If you think you're strong, are you a builder or a destroyer? Are you going to help people in their walk with God, or are you just going to, like, rip them down and, like, throw up your own standards and say, you got to meet this and you got to do this? Listen, other people are much more important than our personal rights, than our personal preferences, in our opinions. So the, the next principle of Christian living is we need to value weaker believers. We need to realize that other people, other believers, are much more important than my own right to exercise liberty. Chapter 15, then, is a little bit of, a, a little bit less like on the ground practical, but it is really like a shaping of how we are thinking in our daily lives. And that is what believers are to hope in. The word hope, I think, is really like a key in, in chapter 15. <clears throat> and so it's actually the answer to my first question. Instead of focusing on petty differences of opinion regarding issues that are not addressed by Scripture, what should be the focus of the church based on verse 4? Let's just read it. Verse 4, chapter 15. For whatever was written in former days, talking about Old Testament writings, was written for our instruction. For what purpose? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance implies we're going to have difficulty. Encouragement means those difficulties are going to discourage us. So where do we turn for endurance and encouragement? We turn to the scripture. And the scripture does what? It refocuses us not on myself and the difficulties I'm going through, but on God himself and the hope that we have in him. The source of hope is the scripture. And then the result of hope is in verse 5. What is that? It would be peace, that's right. And that peace comes from not being at war with each other, right? And I love the, the words that he uses in verse 5. It says that you are to live in such harmony, such harmony in agreement with Jesus that with one voice you glorify God. Want to know how the church can glorify God? Be unified. How are you going to be unified? Well, first of all, be humble love each other, and then love each other enough that we're not going to get caught up in petty differences. Things that tear people apart, things that rip churches in two. God designed the church to function as a cohesive unit to glorify him all together. This is what we are about to do in 20 minutes, is to worship God collectively as the body of Christ in Dracut. And this is something the world cannot do. This is something that the world yearns for with all of, all of the things that they're striving for, all of their independence and they're looking for identity and community and they don't find it. Why? Because they don't have a central focus in Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful hope. In verse seven, it says that we can be like Christ by welcoming one another. I love that word, the welcome ministry right here. Welcoming one another. He used welcome previously, and I've lost track of where it is. I'm, I'm not going to try to find it. <clears throat> it's a great word. We're to welcome one another. 
All right, so the, the principle for practical Christian living, I'm going to steal a line from John Stecke here. He says, keep looking up. That's how he closes his emails. This is like, you hear him say this all the time. I can hear him saying it right now. Keep looking up. It's really what the text is telling us to do. Keep our focus on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. When we have difficulty, when we are discouraged, this is where we need to go. Back to scripture, which will re focus us on the hope that we have in Christ. The second question in chapter 15, Paul now at the end of his book, after having not used the word gospel for quite a while, he uses it like rapid fire succession. And so let's just look quickly at what he does. And I'm just gonna run through these, fill in the blanks because we have five minutes left. And I, I wanna spend a little bit of time on chapter 16. So Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles and he was presenting the gospel of God. In verse 19, he said he had fulfilled his ministry. He had earlier in chapter one, he'd said, this is my obligation is to minister. He said, I've fulfilled my ministry of the gospel of Christ. So a little bit different characterization. What do we see there? Christ is God. And in verse 20, it says his ambition was to preach the gospel to people who have never heard. So how about you? How would you characterize your ministry of the gospel? What is your ambition? The ninth principle for practical Christian living is may our ambition be to tell others about our incredible Lord. This is being a witness, not a salesman, not a debater, a witness that we just tell them about how incredible Jesus Christ is. And then we get to chapter 16, and this is like a long conclusion to the book. And chapter 16 has some really interesting things in it, um, but it starts, the, 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 where I want to start is in verse 3. And do you remember Priscilla and Aquila from Acts chapter 18 and how they were tent makers and so Paul was working with them? Well, that's where Paul met them, but now that was in Corinth, and now Priscilla and Aquila are in Rome. And as he writes the epistle the, to the Romans, he's clearly no longer with them but he sends his greetings to them. But what do we learn about these, t- these dear friends? Why were they so dear in verses three through five? Lynn. Yeah, they li- risked their life. We're not sure exactly when, but they risked their lives for him. Boy, that's a good friend. They had a church in their house is another. And Paul thanked them and the Gentile churches thank them for their ministry. And then Paul goes in the subsequent verses, he lists 27 different individuals, not to mention people that are included in words like the household of so-and-so, 27 people by name. How did he know all these people where he'd never been? Okay, I don't know, there's a few, the commentators don't have an answer to that either. They think that, well, maybe some of them were with Priscilla and Aquila when they got kicked out of Rome. They went as a group, then they went back as a group. So maybe he met them in Corinth. Some of them he may have just known by name and reputation. Others perhaps had been passing through. There may have been more travel in that world than we would think, given the difficulty of it. The principle that I see here is invest in relationships. Love people enough to get to know them. More than just Sunday morning, hi, how are you doing? Oh, that's nice. See you later. See you next week. Invest in relationships. This is what we need to do. So 
we got a couple minutes here, and so we have kind of a summary question, and that is just reflecting back on the book of Romans, what stands out to you? What have you learned personally? What difference has this book made in your life? Yeah, Craig. Amen. Hmm. Right theology lives to God, leads to godly living and glorifies God. Excellent. Yeah, Will. Um, I was convicted about how Paul was like, I want to go preach to people who I haven't even heard, who I don't even know, and I'm scared to even talk to my friends at work, hmm. and I'm scared to talk to the, my neighbors and stuff about God, and Paul's like, I want to go to people who don't even know who I am, who never even heard the gospel, and I want to preach to them. Hmm. Amen. Amen. That kind of boldness. Yeah. Excellent. Love it. Yeah. Ty. From chapter 14, just thinking about how everything I do has to be with the intent to honor God. So hmm. someone should be able to ask me, why am I doing this or why am I not doing this? Excellent. Copy. Hmm. That's wonderful. The joy of serving our Lord. Anybody else? Personally, I've been impressed with both the simplicity of the gospel. It really is simple. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you. You can be saved if you believe. And the deep riches of the doctrines of everything it took for that simplicity to happen. So like the simplicity, but this complexity at the same time is just unbelievable. And then gratitude for God adopting me into his family. The gratitude that God would send Jesus to pay the price so that I could have a relationship with him and not be at war with him anymore. Just wonder and gratitude at our great God for what he's done. Look forward to getting into the books of Corinthians. Next week, Ty's got those. And so um, if you didn't get the question sheet, they're in the back and I urge you, put my arm around you, First Corinthians, or, or Romans 12, one, I exhort you, continue to keep doing the reading and answering the questions. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are so grateful for this book. We are grateful for the love that you've demonstrated to us in sending Jesus we thank you for the gospel. We are convicted by Paul's example and his single focus of an, amb an ambition to tell people who've never heard. I pray you give us that boldness. I pray you just give us a joy in service. I pray you give us hearts of gratitude. I pray that you would just help us to tie ourselves to scripture and that you would help us to renew our minds daily as we spend time in your word. We ask for your blessing now in our worship service that it would glorify you and that you would be made to look great as you should. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.